Good morning. How you doing? I'm Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. I, uh, I work with uh, an awesome group of young people that uh, make up the greenhouse. It's the uh, college and young professionals here. I just want to say, go green. Yeah. Awesome. And um, thanks for that warm uh, shout out. Um, uh, my, um, I wanted to give you a little more information about me. I know we, uh, we've got a lot of new people that have been coming to New Hope. Uh, my wife and I have been, we just celebrated our 25th anniversary. And it's awesome. She is a very gracious woman. And um, I've got five kids. My oldest um, is, is married and my youngest is now 10. So I've kind of moved into a different phase of parenting and life. And um, I can't say I, I, I like, I guess I like, and I, actually I'm not a very good parent overall, to be honest. I'd be a really good parent of two kids, I always say. But I've got five. And so, uh, um, just joking. Um, so anyway, with, uh, with regards to the, the greenhouse, if you're in that demographic of, of being between college age and young adult, how you want to think about that young professional, we'd love to meet you afterward. You can come out. There's a table in the atrium, and there'll be a whole bunch of people standing around, and, and uh, we'd love to connect with you and invite you to be a part of what's going on here at New Hope. Uh, the other thing, real quick, is I'm real passionate about small groups. And as New Hope grows, we want to get more people connected into smaller communities. And so if you um, are in a spot where you'd like to learn how to lead a small group, we'd love to have you do that. You, um, maybe you've had some experience at another point in your life of leading or you've just something you want to just grow in and develop. Um, I'd love to have you come out in the, in, the, uh, in the atrium and meet Jeff after the service. He's um, at the info center and you can ask him more information. You can get more information from him on that or you could also email him at jeff at nhchurch.com. So uh, let's pray and then we'll, we're going to dive into what God has for us this morning. Father, we're just so thankful that we get a chance to be um, here and we get a chance to learn from you. And we get a chance to, uh, to really sit at your feet and have you teach us, um, teach us your, not only your word, but your ways. And God, we pray that you'd help us to be listeners, not only hearers, but doers. That's my prayer, God, that you'd help us to, to do your word. You'd empower us by your spirit to, 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 to not only take to heart and, 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 and comprehend and hold on to the things you want us to, to hold on to, but also that you'd help us to apply it to our lives. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I became a follower of Jesus four months into my freshman year in college. And, and like a lot of young, zealous new Christians, I got rid of a lot of the music that I listened to growing up. I got rid of all of my Def Leppard albums. I know it's tragic to think about that. And then I started listening to Christian music. And when you make a fresh break from the world like I did, it was, it was helpful for a season to rebuild my life and renew my mind with what's true. And one of the artists that I really fell in love with during that time was a guy named Rich Mullins. <clears throat> now, Rich was an amazing musician and, the, the, and his music was so different than most of the other stuff that was out there, mostly because he was so different than pretty much anyone else. I mean, his goal was never to become some famous musician. He, he loved Jesus and the gospel. And from a lot of the stuff I've read about his life, I just get the impression that there was a lot in the music industry that he wasn't all that excited about. And so toward the end of his life, he decided to move to the desert of New Mexico and live on a Native American Indian reservation and teach these young kids music. He had a fascination with the desert and I think part of that was just a rejection of the spotlight and the fame of Nashville. Rich was known for having a different mindset. There were stories of him that just, you know, that just kind of spread around. And one of those was uh, that after a, a big 
reception after one of the big music uh, industry award shows. He, he came into this, this, where this reception was going to be, and he just felt really awkward about other people serving him. And so he strapped on an apron, jumped on the other side of the table, and just started serving all these famous people dessert. I heard a, a, another story about him back in the day um, that stuck with me for over 20 years. Anything that stands in your, out in your mind for decades, it's, it, it marks you. It's, there's something significant about it. And so as, an, as, a, as a successful musician, he made a lot of money. Now, he was very well off. But he chose a, a different path. He actually established a board of trustees who managed his wealth and instructed them to pay him the same amount of money that, that the average person on this Navajo Indian reservation made. Which, again, to my recollection, was something like $12,000 a year. You know, just poverty-level living. Because Rich wanted to be like the people that he was living amongst. And I bring up Rich Mullins to start off our time because I think he embodied the stuff that we're going to look at today. We're in the middle of a side series here at New Hope that I've titled Regardless. And we're working our way through a letter that Paul wrote uh, in the New Testament to a church in an ancient city called Philippi. If you're anything like me, this letter has been such an encouragement to you. I'm the kind of guy that when I get bumped in life, I kind of have this low-level angst that just functions as a joy stealer. Like right now, I have this little burr under my saddle that I have been thinking about way too much. And the more I think about it, the more my circumstances tend to suck the joy and the life right out of me. And yet the moment I start to think about Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, I'm reminded that I can have joy regardless, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of the trials and the struggles that are going on in my life. With Jesus at the center of my life, I can be a regardless kind of person. And so today we're going to be looking at the next section as we walk through this incredible letter. And it's probably one of the most challenging sections of God's word to apply to our lives. You know why? Because Paul paints a picture for us of the kind of people we're to be. We're to emulate Jesus. And Jesus modeled a life marked by humility. This is a picture of our God. And so as we work our way through this section today, Paul is going to hand us a humility sandwich. The bread is the why. It's, you know, the, the beginning and the end. It's the why should you pursue a life marked by humility. And the middle part of the sandwich is the application. This is the how are we to live in light of. And so if you have a Bible, you can flip or tap your way to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And this is what Paul wrote, and this is what we read. Philippians 2. Paul says this. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so Paul starts out right here. The first piece of bread, if you will, is the gospel grounds us in humility. All these intro details really touch on the gospel. So Paul says this. So he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, 
And so, Paul, are you serious? Like, I have so much encouragement from being in Christ. I just jotted down off the top of my head seven things that I'm encouraged about. Here they are, short list here. The first one is I'm forgiven. I'm eternally forgiven. Jesus has paid for all of my sin debt. Two, I'm unconditionally accepted by God because of Jesus. Three, I've been made alive. I've been spiritually regenerated. God gave me the blue pill and I've stepped out of the matrix and I can see things clearly now. Four, I've been given an incredible purpose and calling and so have you. Five, I've got the Holy Spirit alive in my life, convicting me of sin, leading me to truth. Six, I'm never alone. God's promise to me is he'll never leave me nor forsake me. Amen. That's right. Number seven, I'm blessed because of Jesus. I have the blessing of God in my life and that's independent of any earthly blessing. I'm not blessed because I get something in this life. I'm blessed because I have Jesus. And because of that, I have the blessing of God over all of my life. God is for me. And if you're in Christ, he's for you too. So that was just the beginning. Paul then says this, if you have any comfort from love. And here Paul's talking about the comfort that comes from knowing and experiencing the love of God. I mean, there's so much comfort from knowing God's love in my life. This is what our world is really hungering and longing for, is to know and experience the love of God. And we know this love. In another place in the New Testament, Paul says this love is so big that we can't get our brains around it. It's, it surpasses our ability to comprehend it. This isn't conditional love. This isn't the kind of love where if you do this, then I'll love you. It's unconditional. There's security because of the love of God and because of the gospel. This is the love that will never let you go. And that's why you can say, I have received massive amounts of comfort because of the love of God. And Paul goes on, he says, if any participation in the spirit, and this can be translated fellowship with the spirit. And the idea Paul is driving at here is this, because we're in Christ, we have the spirit of God. And because we have the spirit of God alive in us, we have the ability to have fellowship or to participate in the spirit. And with all this, Paul is saying this. He's saying, hey, because all this is true in your life, encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy from God through the gospel, I want you to do this. And then he lays it out for us. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And I'd sum it up like this. Because we've tasted the good of, goodness of God in the gospel, we ought to be humble people focused around the purposes of God, united in the purposes of God. We're to be humbled and humble because we see how great God has been to us. We, we recognize clearly our need for a savior. We see how wide the chasm between us and God was. We have fully embraced the reality that we were fallen and lost and Jesus is holy and a great rescuer. 
And at the end of the day, there was nothing we could do to fix our sin problem. It was all on Jesus. And so the gospel produces humility because we have come face to face with the most humble, sacrificial person and move ever made. And that's the God-man dying a criminal's death on a Roman cross because of God's great love and mercy toward you and me. And again, the result of the gospel is what Paul says here, that we're of the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We're united in the purposes of God for the church. We're all about serving and loving and laying our lives down for the world around us and, and proclaiming the gospel as we do it. Well, that phrase, same mind or being of one mind, it's a key theme that we've been teasing out from the beginning of our study as we've walked through this letter. And that the Greek word there is this word phreneo. And it's the, it means to think or to set one's mind on something. It's used 10 times in this letter, which is a lot because this is not a very long letter. And we're, I would think, you know, when I think about this, we're really good at setting our minds on certain things. I mean, when was the last time that you just forgot to eat a meal? Yeah, never, right? We're always thinking about food. Well, what's the next meal going to be? What, like, what are we doing for dinner tonight? We, we just have our minds set on that thing. When was the last time you forgot to go golfing? Ah, I just forgot. I forgot, to, I forgot my, golf, my tea time this week. I can't believe it. You know, or, or when was the last time, you know, you just forgot to hit the gym or, or the mall? We're really good at setting our minds on lots of things. But Paul, in a very gentle way, is, is saying this. I want you to set your minds on this. Serve and love each other and the world because of all Jesus has done for you. Now, I think there's tons of things that I am encouraged about that are going on in New Hope. Like I, I, when I think about us as a church, I, I actually am just really encouraged. So this isn't a slam in any way, but I just wanted to put this out there. What if we were all in? We were just like, we're all in on this. We're all gonna be of the same mind. We're all gonna have one mind. And that single-mindedness wasn't about politics or about social justice or, our, or whatever our little silo pet project is. But our single-minded focus was about living the gospel and proclaiming the gospel to anyone and everyone. What if God were to give us the grace to persistently and passionately pray for one friend who we interact with on, on a regular basis? I'm not talking about our friend that lives in Alaska. I'm talking about our friend that we work with on a, on a daily basis. I love watching my kids. And I, I've just, one of the things I've been fascinated with is just how naturally they talk to their friends about Jesus. And I'll just tell you, like, there's nothing in, in our family where we're like, hey, you should do this. I, I'm just, a lot of times I'll just overhear that or they'll come back to me and they'll be like, hey, you know, we had this conversation and, and I don't know how to answer this question. And I'm not even talking about my, my older kids. I'm talking about my little kids. They're fearless. 
and they think they've got nothing to lose. And so then I think, well, what do we have to lose? We have nothing to lose. And so Paul starts with the gospel and how that fashions us into humble people. And now he's going to give us the middle layers of this humble sandwich. Verses three and four, this is what he writes. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so Paul's second point for us is gospel-motivated humility moves us to value others over ourselves. Humility moves us to put others before ourselves. Now, I think we, you know, we could camp on those two verses for probably a number of weeks because there's so much there. Paul lays out a command and it's super clear that we're to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. The translation I memorized growing up used the word selfish ambition or vain conceit. Well, what does this mean? The selfish ambition can be defined like this. It's a motivation to elevate oneself or to put one's own interests above another's. It's a self above, uh, above others approach. And the Greek here carries with it a sense of contentiousness, which means someone who's wanting to kind of start a fight, which is obviously the opposite of humility. And vain conceit is this idea of excessive pride or self-esteem that has no foundation in reality. Vain conceit is an elevated or incorrect sense of self. I love the way that gotquestions.org kind of gives us an application. The writer says this, Therefore, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit means not letting our actions be motivated by selfishness, by pride, or by one-upmanship. So let me ask you this, knowing this is how God's word speaks into your life, like how much of what you do right now would you need to stop doing in order to obey what God says to you here? And think about it, how much of social media is just selfish ambition or vain conceit? I mean, am I off? Am I off? Like, or is almost all of what we do with social media essentially saying, look at me. Look at how beautiful I am or how amazing I am. Look at how I'm better than everyone else. Look at how much better I am than you. That's it. Selfish ambition and vain conceit is really another way of saying, I'm better than you. But see, the humility that comes from the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus moves us in a radically different direction. It moves us to the second part of this verse. Do nothing from this perspective. But what? But in humility, count or consider others more significant than yourself. Paul just drops the mic, boom. Why do we struggle with this verse? Well, can I share something with you that might sting a little bit? I'm going to do it anyway. See, when your identity is wrapped up in anything other than Jesus, you will fight to protect your identity. Someone can't be more physically attractive than you because that would mean you aren't the most attractive. Someone can't be more successful than you because then that means that you're less than the other person. 
Why do you care how many people like a picture you post? Because somehow you derive meaning and purpose from what others think about you. But when you're secure in how God sees you, now you're free to consider others more significant than yourself. You can move out from self and be interested in others. And see, that's what the gospel does in your life. It frees you from your life having to be about you. The gospel shows you that your savior, your leader, demonstrated how you can live your life. You can now lay it down for others. Your life becomes less about you and more about Jesus and others. Because Jesus, the God of the universe, lowered himself and saw you as more significant than himself. This truly could be a monumental breakthrough in how you think about Jesus and how you think about yourself. Now, that this doesn't mean that you stop taking a shower or you stop taking care of yourself. It just means that something changes in here, in your heart. God made you attractive or handsome. He gave you gifts. He's the reason you're successful in the business world or the academic world or whatever you do. Everything you have is a gift from him. In the New Testament, Paul said it like this. What, what do you have that you haven't been given? Everything you have is a gift from God. There's no wiggle room for you to have pride in your life. Like somehow you've manufactured something. You've made yourself successful. And that's why when you have a heart that's been transformed by the gospel, your life is about making Jesus famous and helping others understand the gospel. It's no longer about you. You make it your goal to point people to Jesus, not yourself. And so humility counts others as more significant than ourselves. So let me ask you this. How often in your life do you count others as more significant than yourself? What would that even look like, right? I've got three things for you to consider. The first one is, do you hang out with people who have a different socioeconomic position than you. Second one is, do you give the precious resources of your life away to others? Do you give away your time, your money, your, your skills? Do you, how do you invest your life in other people? And then three, is there any group of people that you look down on for some reason? And so verse three is all about gospel-motivated humility and how we value others. And so as we move to verse four, Paul lays out another challenging exhortation. He doesn't move very far away in his thought process. And, he, and so we're still in the kind of the middle of our sandwich where Paul writes this. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so the third point that Paul is going to give us is gospel-motivated humility moves us to consider the interests of others. And so here's Captain Obvious for you. It's normal to look out for your own interests. I mean, we're really good at that. that that's something that we naturally do 
really well. Our sin nature loves to look out for ourselves. The natural movement of your life and this world is to look out for number one. It's customary for me to do what works best for me, regardless of you. In the last couple of weeks, you know, I love how this happens. When you prepare a message, you kind of just get ready for something that's going to happen in your life that's going to challenge what you're going to talk about. In the last couple of weeks, I have actually been on both sides of the equation of this, of this verse. And so it, I tell you, to me, it makes sense why people look out for their own interests. Because we want life to go the way we want it to go. We want to be in control. We want to control things. We want to control people. When I look out for my own interests, what I'm saying is I, w- I want to be in control. I want to manipulate life so that it works out the way that I want it to. I assume the role of God in my life and ultimately I determine that I'm more important than you. And, and really, obviously, that's a false reality. Humility that we derive from the gospel says that all people matter because Jesus died for all. I'm not more important than you. And because Jesus didn't look out for his own interests, but for the, the interests of others, that's the path that we're to walk as well. I mean, the reality is if we claim to follow Jesus, then we need to follow Jesus, right? And that means his word and his ways become our word and our ways. And yes, when we look out for the interests of others, we may lose something. Or our scenario may not be as beneficial to us as it would be if we ignored the interests of the other party. Now, I have been in a scenario in the past, even this past week, where I had to wrestle with, am I going to look out for the interests of the other person? And to be honest, in my thought process, it, was gonna, it could very much have cost me something. Actually, it could have cost me a lot. We might have lost money. But we decided to do what we did because we thought God's word was clear to us. But see, here's the beauty of God's word. When you apply this to your life, you move in the direction of who you were created to be. And here's the beauty of a life that's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We're no longer who we used to be. My old self only cared about myself. But I'm a new creation and the new creation has been Recreated to be like God. Another place in the New Testament says that we're to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so the bottom line for me is I may end up with less money because I chose to consider the interests of the other party. But I'm moving in the direction of becoming more like my Savior, which is great gain. So when are we going to get it? You know, the days of our life are numbered. They're short. Our lives are short. Are we going to get to the end of our day and be like, oh, I wish I had been more selfish. I wish I'd thought more about my own interests and not the interests of others. No. 
We're going to praise God that we didn't live for ourselves. That we obeyed this passage and considered the other person and their interests. Let's be people whose lives are marked by humility. Humility that flows from the gospel. And humility that comes from following after Jesus. Which leads us to the last section we're going to look at. And it may be one of the most significant teachings in all the New Testament on humility. And it's really the other piece of bread that's kind of holding our humility sandwich together. It's the why. Why would we do this or become these kinds of people? And it's this. Our fourth point is Jesus is the model for humility. He's the model for humility to all people and especially to those who follow him. And so in verse five, we're going to read a larger section of scripture. So you're going to have to bear down with me and hang in there. I'm going to go relatively quickly, but I want you to follow this. It's incredible. Verse five, we read this. Have this mind, again, phreneo, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. It's incredible. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Paul is going to, he completes our humility sandwich for us by starting and ending with the word mind. He wants the Philippian Christ follower to be of the same mind. And this is the mind he wants them to have. He wants them to have the mind of Christ. Which he says that they have because they're in Christ. And so if you're in Christ, you have the raw materials that you need for this to be true of you. Now, I want to look at two things that Paul highlights here in this passage. The first thing is, he didn't, Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. Look at how far removed Jesus' mindset was from selfish ambition or vain conceit. In making himself nothing or taking the form of a servant, he was always thinking about others. In laying his life down, he counted others more significant than himself. I didn't share this in the first service because I didn't know how, how it would land exactly. But I was thinking about this. In Isaiah 52, right before the famous passage in Isaiah 53, it talks about nothing in Jesus' appearance would have attracted us to him. Like, what would his Instagram account look like? It, it wouldn't have been something that you, he would have had like, you know, 50,000 followers based on his appearance. That is a humble God. He could have been fashioned in any way. He could have looked like something radically different, but chose a humble path, even in his appearance as a man. Anyway, the second thing that Jesus did on our behalf is in verse eight, 
where it says that he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if you ever get a chance, go home and read the last three chapters of Mark's gospel. In Mark's account, what you see from uh, chapter 14 all the way to chapter 16 is just this incredible, humiliating scenario that Jesus walked through. Extremely shaming. And he walked through that for us. Again, the ultimate picture of humility. Well, Paul ends this section by stating that God raised Jesus up and exalted him and that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And that means that everyone will bow before him. Some will bow voluntarily because they've chosen to follow him in this life, they've chosen to love him and submit to him. And many will be forced to bow. And so what do you do with this kind of love and humility? Well, I've got kind of two different groups I want to speak to here this morning. You may be here and you may be new to the faith or just kind of processing the faith. You might be trying to put the puzzle pieces of the Christian faith together. And if that's where you're at, super excited that you joined us. Here's what you need to know. This is what you need to know. You need to know that all of us at one point were selfish, ambitioned, vain, conceited, only looking out for ourselves kinds of people. And that selfishness, self-centeredness the Bible talks about is sin. And our sin is, is what separated us from, from God. Our sin is dark and oppressive. And left to our own devices, we would eventually have destroyed ourselves. But God made a way for the selfish, self-oriented person like me and like you to be reconciled to himself. And that way was and still is Jesus. Jesus, in humbling himself to the point of death on a cross, took our sin onto himself. And when we receive him and we trust in what he did for us, God regenerates our hearts and makes us a new creation. That's what the, the Bible talks about when it talks about being spiritually uh, alive or becoming spiritually alive or being spiritually reborn or being born again. And when you become spiritually alive, now you have the mind of Christ because the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. And so if you've never become a child of God, like today, you could become one by trusting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And so for you, I think that's your first move because you can't have this mindset until you have the mind of Christ. And for those of us here who have already become Christ followers, let's press into moving even more away from self and let's be about others. Let's set our minds on considering others above ourselves and let's, let's look not just to our own interests. Let's move toward Jesus. Rich Mullins had this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Humility motivated by the gospel message. That was... I think his mojo. He moved away from selfish ambition and vain conceit and 
considered others more significant than himself. He made it his aim to, to look out for the interests of others and to imitate his Lord. And with that, we're going to take a deep breath and we're going to kind of end what I was just talking about there. But it's a great transition into a chance for us to celebrate the gospel this morning as we take communion together. This is uh, referred to in the New Testament as the Lord's Supper. And it is an opportunity for us to remember Jesus, to remember what Jesus did for us. So we've just spent all this time talking about it. Now we get to take a physical reminder of what he's done for us on the cross. And so I just want to share a passage that we talk about here at New Hope as we uh, get into this um, I must have lost my bookmark. All right. This is what Paul wrote. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And essentially we're proclaiming the message of the gospel over and over again today. He says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so what what I want you to do is I want you to come up and take the elements and I want you to think about during a time of reflection how good God has been to you in the gospel. And then... There's, uh, like, there's four tables up in front. There's two in the back. Grab the elements, take them back, and then just wait, and we'll come back together, and we'll, we'll partake together of the supper. We get a chance to celebrate our hero, Jesus. And, and so we're going to take the bread, and we're going to take it together. Jesus said this, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we're so blessed. I just can't even think about what life would be like without Jesus. I'm so so thankful that you've intervened in our life and helped us to see the truth of the gospel. And God, because of that, I I pray that we would just, we would allow um, the gospel to motivate us toward humility, 
to consider others more significant than ourselves and to think about the interests of others. We need your help to do that, God. We, we know that for, for real deep life change to happen in us, we, we need the Spirit of God to, to, to do that in us. We, so we pray that you would continue that work that you've begun in us. And we just, we just tell you, we love you, we thank you. Thank you for your, your death on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if there is something that we could be praying for you for, we, we'd love to invite you over um, to pray with one of our pastors at the prayer room following the service. Um, I just want to thank you for being here this morning and uh, tell you we look forward to having you back again next week. Thanks for being here. Have a great week.